Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. I went into Anthony's bedroom, so all I see was chest rise. And I'm like, okay, turn back to Dominic. I said, he's fine. He's fine. And I yell at Anthony. And I go, Anthony, what the hell are you doing? And he didn't really wake up very much. But I look at Dominic and I said, you can go. He's good. I was like, he probably got something again, but you can go. So I go up to closer to Anthony and shook him and his eyes open up at me and he goes, what? In hindsight, call 911. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Lassingame and I am your host. Today we have Nicole and Joe Escano. Nicole and Joe are the siblings of Anthony Escano, who died of an overdose in August of 2021. Anthony ordered what he thought was Percocet on the dark web, but in reality, the pills were fentanyl. He is one of the 70,000 Americans who died from fentanyl in 2021 alone. After Anthony's death, Nicole and Joe were forced to wade through the complicated grief that comes with overdose, the mix of emotions that come as they approach each first, the first week without them, the first Christmas, the first anniversary, all while wrapped up in the idea that they wish they could have done more and a questioning of every interaction they had leading up to that moment. Since his death, Nicole and Joe are trying to make sense of everything that happened so that others might not have to face a similar situation. Their recovery isn't linear, but they are taking steps to recover as a family. They're also using their platform to try to make a difference in the opioid crisis. The Escanio story is one of a family who continues to fight for each other, even when it feels like there isn't anything else that can be done. This is an important story, and it's also a really hard one. The grief that this family has gone through is complicated and recent. The 70,000 Americans that died in 2021 have left behind a wake of family members, loved ones, cousins, uncles, aunts, children, spouses, friends in their wake. And we need to help people find a path to recovery because this problem is so big that it is now touching every corner of this country. So much of what I heard with Nicole and Joe were stories that I hear and feelings and questions that I hear all the time from family members struggling with a loved one with addiction. The difficulty of combining compassion and frustration, the honest judgments that go through their head, the feelings of giving up, the money, the heartache, all of those things I hear all the time and they are in this story. But there is also hope that Nicole and Joe are spreading Anthony's story so that we might save other lives from this same fate. So without further ado, I give you Nicole and Joe. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Welcome. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Since we normally have one guest at a time, will you guys introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about uh, what your name is, who you are, and what you do. 
I'll start because I'm older. So <laughs> I'm Nicole Ascanio. Joe's my brother. And I live in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I have two kids, married, and I'm a family medicine doctor. So I opened up my own practice. So I do direct primary care. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, Joe. Hey, I'm Joe Ascanio. I have an eight, soon to be nine-year-old. We are in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we all went to high school before everybody kind of split off and did their own thing. I am at Lion Rock. I joined at the beginning of the year to help bring our program to employers to be offered as an employee benefit to their employees. Awesome. Where did you guys grow up? Can you guys tell me a little bit about your childhood, how many siblings you have, birth order? Yes. So our brother, Anthony, was the oldest. He is 13 months older than me, and he was born in Maine. I was born in Maine. Joe, you were also born in Maine, right? Yeah, I was just born. And we moved to a couple places in Illinois, and that's where Dominic was born. So we've got another brother. What was the culture of your family? There's there's four kids. You guys moved around a lot, which probably caused you to be very close-knit with each other because that was the one constant. What was the kind of vibe in your house? I felt like we were... I don't want to say strangely close, but really, really close. And looking back, it probably is exactly that. Like we moved around so much. So we had each other and we had the typical sibling arguing, fighting. There was a phase where um, I remember when I was little, I would like use Joe as my security blanket. I was so shy. So if I had a friend, if I was going to invite a friend over when I was like in elementary school, I would talk to my mom about how Joe had to be there because like, what if the kid didn't have fun? What if I didn't know what to do? And then, but then we, there was certainly phases where like we were not very nice to Joe. There were times I'm sure Joe, you and Anthony were like, Anthony didn't want his little brother around, you know, like that typical stuff. And we were the house that kids would always come over to. My mom just loved to entertain. She liked to have people over. So we did. My parents knew all of Anthony's friends and my friends. Our friends loved my parents. It was, it just, we were close and we enjoyed being around each other. And that continued as we became adults. What was Anthony like? Um, Anthony was shy, a shy little kid, very kind of similar to me, probably not quite as bad. I had a ton of anxiety when I was little um, and that kind of has carried through. Anthony was very laid back. So he was shy, but he was a laid back kid. I remember him as a fun, happy-go-lucky little kid. He was so witty that even if you were like irritated with him for something, he was so quick, you couldn't help but just laugh. He was also so gentle. I never heard him raise his voice. And this was as a kid. This was as like when him and Joe would fight. Um, this is as you know, high schooler with his friends. This was as an adult. This was as working with him because we worked in certain places together. I've never heard him raise his voice. And then he, he started through a phase of having a lot of anxiety. It was clearly building, but seemingly looking back kind of came out of nowhere and you wouldn't have expected it. Or at least I didn't anticipate it because he had such a big friend group in high school and had so much fun and school was easy for him. Right. So he didn't have to like sit down and study. And then he went to college for his first year. And that's where it was like, it completely turned. He started to really struggle with just yeah, life. A lot of social anxiety in college. Didn't like being around other people. Couldn't walk into class two minutes late and have the class like look at him as he walked in. He just wouldn't go. That's where it really came out. I think ended up being like a spiral that my parents had no idea about until he came home for Christmas that first year. He would either be late for class, so not go. And because he didn't go the day before, couldn't go the next time. You know, it was just like a cycle where he... And for me at the time, because I was like 
just focused on getting an A in every class because I wanted to go to med school. And it's like, you know, that drove me. I'm like, just get up and go. And I know I have anxiety, but I didn't have that kind of anxiety. I had anxiety over other things. And, but his manifested very much in social situations. So sometimes it was hard. It was like, are you kidding me? You just like didn't go. Looking back and then knowing and talking to him, you know, later on, it was just like a paralyzing anxiety. I do think that's where he started to see that, not that it got too out of control, but seeing that drinking alleviated that social anxiety. Obviously it does a little bit for everybody, but I think he started using it more so to, to be out. I want to get into a little bit of culinary school, Joe. Will you talk to me about that experience? Because it sounds like it was a really pivotal experience in both your life and Anthony's. Well, so Anthony and Nicole started working at this French, Southern French restaurant here in town as waiters. And when I turned 15, I got a job as like a prep cook in the back. So we all worked together there for a while. Nicole ended up leaving to focus on school. Anthony went to Wilmington. I stayed and worked under some really, really good chefs for a while and had no idea what the hell I was going to do with my life. So culinary school just seemed like a good thing to do. It was the first time I'd been in school and it was that was the best at it. Uh, it was just it just was easy for me. I had worked under some really good chefs, so I knew a lot more than the people I was starting with. It was just easy for me, which I loved. And then when Anthony ended up coming home from Wilmington, kind of lost like I was before. I was just like, just make mom and dad happy. Just come come to culinary school with me. You know, we're doing something. And he did, and he the same. You know, he it, he took very easy to it. From a big Italian family, and my dad cooked all the time. You know, it was everywhere, and we were both really good at it. And we got recognition for it. And we took over restaurants really quick together. You know, there's very few times where I wouldn't move on to a restaurant or he wouldn't move on to a restaurant where within a month or two, the other one was there with the other person. We kind of moved around with each other the entire time. It's obviously a stressful job, especially when you start running the kitchens on your own. And again, I'm the angry chef that throws shit across the kitchen. Anthony was the quiet head down Yes, sir. Getting stuff done. But together, we really did do a good job. Definitely started to see Anthony's drinking pick up a good bit when we got into the restaurants afterwards. It's a terrible environment for that kind of thing. It just like kind of breeds that. Coke everywhere and obviously drinking every night. And- uh, so I'm aware that the restaurant industry drinks and does a lot of Coke. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it breeds that? I mean, because I, for me personally, standing in a hot kitchen drink, and I love drinking and doing Coke, but standing in a hot kitchen drinking and doing Coke sounds very stressful. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's controlled chaos. You, you know, you, it, once the bell rings, you have a few hours to cook for 500 people and it's a high in its own. You know, there's, I hate it so much when I think back on it sometimes, or if I'm cooking for more than four people at home and I get put back in that mode of feeling like I'm doing it again, I, I hate it. But the high you get from putting out the last ticket, doing really nice food, nothing coming back is an endorphin rush. You're getting off at one, two o'clock in the morning and you feel tired. But if you were to go home and sit on the couch, you wouldn't go to bed till four or five. You know, that's when we started doing opiates together was we didn't even really know about them. We remember we knew like hydrocodeine from high school and stuff. But I remember we got off work one night and instead of going out drinking with everybody, we somebody had an Oxycontin or some, you know, one of those pills and we did it and we're like, holy shit, this is nice that we get to get off work, go home, sit down, feel good, go to sleep and wake up to do it again in the morning. And eventually when we did it too much and started feeling kind of sick and needing the drug, there were times where we didn't have it. When you put us in the rush of the kitchen, it almost took about 70 to 80% of the withdrawal symptoms away. 
just because of that that high that you get from from doing it. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really interesting point. I haven't heard that a lot. Like where you can take away. I mean, the significant withdrawal from this other this other high goes to show how how intense it was. Talk to me about what his using was like, what you know about it and what it was like, how it started to escalate. It was a slow burn. It started pretty slowly. And we did get, we did notice that we were addicted and kept going. And there was always a point eventually where I would feel like shit for the spot we were in and tell my dad or tell my mom and be like, we need some help. This isn't good. And Anthony would say, okay, fine. It was never his idea to get, I think it did so much for him to get rid of the anxiety and make him personable and have him comfortable talking to people and, and being the normal Anthony that he always used to be. That I think he, he liked it more than you did. Oh yeah. Yeah. He liked, I, liked, he yeah just, I liked the high and eventually it be, did become like a coping thing and all that. Like my, my brain changed and it, it was how I coped with shitty days and hard days. They were so different, him and Anthony, like so different with their addiction piece. Just even seeing each of us when we first tried like drinking alcohol, you know, it was so clear. He has it. He doesn't have it. I don't have it. He could have it, you know, kind of thing. Because Anthony would drink without stopping. There was never quite like, that's enough. I think I'm like still in control. I'm going to stop. Looking through Anthony's whole life, it wasn't just alcohol or opiates. Opiates were certainly the downfall. But when he was clean, he, his depression and anxiety, how he coped with it when he had the downs and the lows was food. So he would like binge and, and feel so awful about himself. But it was like, well, certainly better than opiates. So we'll take it. But there was always something. Nothing's ever grabbed me like opiates did. But everything grabbed Anthony that way. Everything. I could have a drug laying around and put it in a drawer. And maybe I'll do it this time when I am see friends in a couple months. If Anthony had it, it was being done until it was gone. You, you guys are just literally describing me and my sister who partied. We're two years apart. We partied together. And every time there was a mention of we need to stop doing this, it was her mentioning it. Or every time there was a mention of like, this feels dangerous. You probably shouldn't, you know, try to fit down the chimney, Ashley, or whatever it is. What I'm picturing is you loved drugs and alcohol, but he needed them. And that's that was how it felt between me and my sister, where it was like, she loved doing it. And it certainly there were certain things that grabbed her. And and made her spiral and weren't good for her life. But I needed it. It was who a part of who I was, and and it wasn't just something I did. And that's an interesting thing for parents to think about too. Is if you were to show these two Joe and Anthony's life, you'd be like, well, that's the kid who's going to have a problem. Right. That's the kid who's going to overdose. Was Joe every time? But it was absolutely not Joe. I was really never worried or scared for Joe because Joe was smart about it. For whatever reason, I felt like, well, Joe Joe knows. Joe always felt. So, I mean, Anthony felt guilt too, but it was like inner, inner, like shame and guilt. Joe was just so much smarter. Like he, if you look at their life together, Joe was like the risk taker, but he wasn't. Anthony was the risk taker. Joe always kind of had a stop. You're measuring risk differently, right? Because one of the things that, that with my sister, she would take risks, but I wasn't, it, I wasn't taking a risk. I didn't care what happened. It was different. I was willing to pay the consequence. Whereas my sister was taking a risk, but she didn't want the consequence. She was just taking a risk. This conversation is really important for parents to hear that just because someone's really good in school or someone, you know, as you describe Anthony, or level-headed, and level-headed quiet. or whatever, mm-hmm. and just be like, it, not it, reactive. It's mm-hmm. not 
not, these are not guarantees that everything will be okay or that everything won't. I remember getting the phone call. I think I was the first one who you guys told because I was, it was my first year of residency and you guys called me together on speakerphone and you guys were like crying. And I was like, what? And I was like, what is going on? And you, I remember you saying like, I'm here with Anthony. We're struggling. We need to tell you something. And I'm like, okay. And I had no idea. And you'd said in whatever words that you guys were addicted to opiates, oh, you yeah. couldn't get off of them. And you, you could barely get those words out. You were crying. Um, and Anthony's no, in the back. Anthony couldn't even, this is there. Anthony couldn't even speak. All I heard was him like sniff, like he couldn't even talk and how you guys just didn't know what to do because you knew you had to detox. That was the thing. And their jobs too. You couldn't just go and say, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to take a week off, get through the withdrawal symptoms and I'll be back. It was like, okay, well, who's going to run the kitchen kind of thing. And you were just like, we just need help. And I remember you saying to me, I think all we need is a couple nights in a hotel and we'll be okay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I knew about drugs, obviously we learned about stuff in med school, whatever, but this was at the the beginning of all of the opiate issues. So I remember I said, I'm going to add dad into this call right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that was when it all became, it was a big, like, okay, they have a big problem. And then I think my mom and dad's efforts were zoned in on both of them, you know, forever and much less so Joe, because again, for whatever reason, not that we didn't care about you, Joe, we just (laughs) knew knew that Joe was going to like, he was going to get himself. I think because what we saw when he was like struggling in middle school for a little while, he like totally turned himself all around and he did that by himself. You know, because through that time, my parents, I think, didn't know about it, didn't know the extent of it, didn't know how, how do you, how do you deal with drug addiction when you come from a family where no one has any experience with drugs? But we always, from that point forward, I never worried about the phone call of Joe's dead. I worried when my phone rang and it was my mom or dad, it never didn't cross my mind that I was going to be told that anything's dead somewhere. What was the path after that phone call when you conferenced your dad in? What was what took you guys down to this place of like, I'm afraid for this phone call from Anthony? Took a while to get there. One, because I don't think anybody really, you know, this was again quite a while ago. It, opiates weren't huge in the media. Like nobody really knew. This um, is when people could still rob a pharmacy for opiates. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were doing that. We weren't doing that. People no, were, they were not. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but they were getting them from those people. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, heroin hadn't come into the picture yet or anything like that. If we did slip, it wouldn't be too bad. And we go back, I'd bring it up and say, okay, we got to get back off it again. And then I stayed off of it for a while. And pretty much from then on, and Anthony was lying and using and doing it behind my back, which was a whole new thing that had never happened before. It was him doing it alone was just a bad scenario. When Joe didn't know about it, like, yeah. And I always kind of knew about it. I'd always see it in his face or so, but eventually you get so sick of going one, feeling like you're ratting your brother out. And then your parents being like, Oh no, he's fine. No, he's not doing that stuff anymore. He's, he's okay. And <laughs> because like, he was okay. so convincing. And a month later, right. Yeah. Yeah, he was, but I, I could just see it on his face I, or the way he was acting or, and then my longtime girlfriend got pregnant and that was the first time in God, I don't know, maybe six or seven years that me and Anthony didn't live together. So obviously it was harder for me to see what was going on. I think we're at the time where he had done several detoxes like over time and like rehab. I I don't know how many times he went to a rehab facility, a handful of times. He would do good for a little while. And he was so convincing that you felt bad for asking. It was just like a hamster wheel of Anthony's doing better. 
Now I'm starting to notice funny things. Oh shit, my bank account. He took this amount of money. Okay, now he's, you know, whatever. Now I'm making him drug test. Now he has to go to a rehab again. 30 days in rehab, comes back to this exact same environment. It was like, it was all they knew to do. Like, what else do you do? You send your kid to rehab and they get fixed, right? Yeah. No, that 30 absolutely day, not. That whole 30 day thing is just, I mean, nobody can get through it in 30 days. Yeah. You obviously can get through the some of the withdrawal symptoms, but... Yeah, I mean, it's not even a full joke. detox. No, not even close. And Anthony would it either be he got, you know, would get kind of caught or found out that way, or he wouldn't have any money or couldn't find any money and felt so sick. Where he'd be like, okay, take me to a, take me somewhere where they're going to get me, you know, to boxing or something and get through this. What did it look like towards the end? And I want to talk a bit about Joe. I know you had an understanding, but you know, Nicole as a doctor and a sibling watching this, having not been through it, I want to talk about some of the judgments that came up for you during this time, especially towards the end. Like whenever Anthony was around and not just totally like, like he wouldn't really come around if he was totally like gone, but he'd still be around for holidays and stuff. And he was still Anthony. We definitely grew apart for a good few years while I was in residency. I was in Cleveland you know, during residency, super busy. And then just constantly, constantly getting the updates, you know, because at this point he was not, he never lived alone after I think that first thing with when he had to go to like detox, he never lived alone after that. Like he was with my mom. He couldn't afford any, he couldn't afford to live by himself. So it would just be this constant conversation of, okay, this happened again. And it would get kind of like a little bit worse each time. Like it was this amount of money that was taken or he tried to spend some time in Maine because it was at that point, it was like, okay, well, obviously North Carolina just isn't working. He, you know, he even knew like North Carolina's not going to work. So he tried Maine. He lived with my grandparents and he stole from both grandparents, which he would never, like, he always told my mom and told us, I will never, I would never kill myself. Like, I would not do that to you guys. But I almost feel like it, he, in his mind, he would have felt like it would be, have been easier to do that than to take from my grandparents. And that's why it's so hard when he did pass away. I felt so pulled. No one made me feel this way, but I felt so pulled to make sure that he wasn't wrapped up in this judgmental stigma of what trash bag addicts, what people think trash bag addicts look like, right? Like it's just, they're just horrible people with no morals and no ethics and just, you know, whatever. And I was just like, he, that they're not. So I learned that through Anthony, but I, you know, as a doctor and especially in primary care, like would see this stuff all the time. So I had a, and I had a very good understanding about how addiction was a disease. Very clear. I think Anthony and Joe, knowing how close I was to them and how much I love them, how good I knew that they were, but they also struggled with addiction helps also solidify like this is not something they can help. This is a fate worse than death for so many people. But I was so frustrated so often, so frustrated. It's happening again. He always stayed with my mom and then was like draining her and she didn't have much anyways. And I was just so mad, like just stop letting him back in. Just stop. This is insane. And then my mom would always say, and she would get, she would get to her like wit's end with it too, for sure. But she, when I would like get to my point where I would be like, let him out on the street. He's better off getting arrested. She's like, talk essentially like talk to me when you have kids <laughs> kind of thing. And I got that. Like, and, and so then I sat on that for a little while and I was like, yeah, I mean, they were always those parents where the door was always open. They were never going to kick one of their kids to the curb. They were always going to be there to help, but they, she didn't know what else to do. And what else do you do? Honestly, like you do the rehabs and the, they come back and they're, they need so much more help than that. I was just, I wrote him a letter. Actually, I wrote Anthony a 
a letter that I very much regret. But at this time, I didn't see Anthony very often, but I knew he was still Anthony. But all I heard were these horrible downs that he kept having and what he was doing to mom and what he was doing to dad. I think, unfortunately, I found it in my email. This was years ago, years ago. And it was hurtful to him, I think, because at that point, I didn't have the full understanding that I have, um, have now around the mental illness part of it and how much he could not get out and how much more help you need if you stand a chance at it. I was just hopeful that it was going to be like, this will get through to him. Certainly. That's so common. And and when I talk to people about like, you know, given, you know, that it's like, I'll just give them the business. And it's interesting when you were talking about, you know, here's this guy, Anthony, he's a really, really good guy. And then we're describing all the family members that he stole from and all the things that he did. And what I, what I tell people and how I've been working on trying to break the stigma is I say, look, the stigma comes from a real place. We do really shitty things <laughs> when we are using. We look and act and sound and do things that shitty people do. That makes it very confusing for people to believe that we aren't a shitty person because exactly. we sure yeah. have the whole costume on. The problem is that the brain aspect of what's going on and the desperation, the dire need. Absolutely. How That's easy it the, is to rationalize those yes. actions. Yes. Like, it's so yes. easy to be like, well, and you know, then you're, you know, taking. And that's actually those terrible so things easy. that he did made me more understanding around that because I was like, if he's doing that, I cannot imagine what he's going through. I don't even know exactly. He must have got to a point where he was fed up. So he, I remember this whole situation very well where Ellie wouldn't let him in the house. He was using, he had reached out and said, I'm in a bad spot. I got to go back to detox. You found him. I don't know if, I think at that point he had gotten into heroin because he couldn't afford anything else. Ellie and I were living together with our son. He reached out. He'd been shooting heroin, but started also shooting Coke a little bit. And I would sit out back at our house and smoke cigarettes. And he like snuck around to find me. And he was fucking sobbing and showed me the fucking marks in his arms. And then I know my ex-wife, Ellie, who is still really close with all of us, regrets this to the way she kind of handled it at times. But she would always be like, fuck no, he's not coming in here. Whatever. He slept in his car outside of our place that night. I'd have to like bring him water and food. And, um, and she loved Anthony. She does. You know, she but does. at that point, yeah. she was also like fed up and she had a son in the house. And I mean, that's the right to sit that, uh, yeah. you know, I have to tell you that yeah, I, would sure. tell, I would tell the family to do the same thing. And you mentioned like this 30 days, they you know kept coming back. And, and the reality is when we look at the people who are successful with treatment, they're doing 30 days of inpatient. They're doing months of intensive outpatient typically from a sober living, and they are typically involved in some sort of treatment program for minimum of a year. Two of the predictors of success for someone who's struggling with addiction and, and, and their recovery are the therapeutic alliance that they have with the counselor. Doesn't mean the counselor's the most educated, the best degrees, the best schools, just that therapeutic alliance, how much they trust them, and the length of stay in treatment. Not the intensity, not the amenities, none of that. The length of stay. So when we talk to people, I always talk to them about what is your budget? Because if yep. you have $10,000 total to spend, let's just say that, you know, $10,000 out of pocket, we're going to go to a low end and we're going to do, we're going to stretch out a lower and in, lower intensity for as long as possible, because that's the greater chance. These 30 day, you know, really expensive. What, what it's like is if you buy a Bentley and you never, 
ever get an oil change. That's what they're doing by buying these 30-day programs that are really amazing. They are amazing, but you have to maintain them in order to get them to work. He never wanted to do anything after ever until the last, until the last time he went. Yeah, the only he time never. it ever worked was the 60 day into a halfway house. The halfway house just lost their chef for the house. So he became the cook. There you go. Got yep. to stay for free. It was all the guys it, loved him because was he was amazing. actually doing really good food for these, for these guests. And he it was, would send us pictures of what he would cook for them. He's like, they were previously eating like packaged cinnamon rolls and he would make them all these like fantastic meals. He never complained about it. And he had never even considered going to a place before. And I wish I would have talked to him a little bit more about what drove him to that. I think it was just like, I've run out of options. I was just talking to a mom who her son went to 30 days of treatment and she was like, what do she called me? She actually is a listener of the podcast and she emailed me. She said, what do I do? How do I get my son to go to sober living? And uh, I worked with her on a cup on a script and what we did and it worked because she said, I am not going to participate in you coming home. I will not give you money. I will not let you stay here. But if you go to sober living, if you stay sober, if you stay in the sober living, I will cover your costs. I will cover your food. I will cover the legal fees that you have incurred (laughs) back here at home. But if you leave, all of that financial support goes away. These types of things, they feel barbaric for parents because they feel like you're saying like, go out on the street. But what you are saying is you are choosing to go out on the street. But if you make a different choice, I will support you and I will show up for you. And here's the plan the moment you make that choice towards recovery. And so it's not just get out onto the street. It's this is your option or And I think that's where my parents were with him at that point because that was a super low, low. I don't think they had any idea he was using heroin. And my mom was like, I don't know what else we could possibly do. And I remember he went to, it was either rehab or hickory and it was his birthday. And I gave him a birthday card, you know, to take with him. Was so hopeful, but had very low expectations. And something about this place, he thrived. He started running. He worked out every day. He cooked. He felt good about himself. He liked the guys. He stopped smoking cigarettes. Yes. He stopped smoking cigarettes. It was crazy. And he did it for a solid six to eight months. And then it was like, what am I going to do now? Um, Where do I go? He knew he could not go back to North Carolina, to Mooresville because of the triggers, because of the ease of access because of the memories. Somehow it came... I think it was actually my husband who said... Because we were in Omaha. So we finished residency and then moved to Omaha. And I honestly think it was him because it never crossed my mind. Because I was like, that sounds like a super toxic situation. But he's like, he should come live with us. He needs to get out of North Carolina. He should come live with us. And I'm like, you sure? <laughs> like we've got a kid, both two jobs, and but he just because he knew Anthony, he knew who Anthony was, he knew the pain of what Anthony was going through and what the family was going through, and he knew that Anthony, in whatever capacity he could know, he knew that Anthony needed a different environment, and we were like, where else do you go? And I was like, well, if you're okay with it, then I need to be okay <laughs> with it. It took me a little while because I remember Anthony kept saying to me, "Are you sure? Like, are you sure?" And I was like, "Yeah." Like if you've got a chance at success here and I have an opportunity to help you with that, then yeah. When he first moved here, he was at like the best I've seen him. It was, it was Anthony, regular Anthony. And we were super competitive with like our workouts. So we both had Apple watches and we would share workouts with each other. And he was very motivated. He got a job right away at PayPal. He actually had a girlfriend. He 
was super close with my daughter, Sophia. He would pick her up from school when Brandon and I couldn't get her. He would do family events at the daycare when we couldn't make it. He was just clean, not that long in the grand scheme of things. Um, But I trusted him with my kid. I trusted him in my home. I didn't hide things. I didn't hide my wallet. He never once took from us ever. So I feel pretty good about that because he took from a lot of people, but he never once took from us. And he was easy to have in the house. He was funny. He cooked all the time. He was just, and he lived with us for almost a year. I felt bad because we've got this house with plenty of room, but it was like, where's the end? Where's like the end game? I was pregnant. My son was being born. So we kind of gave him like September as like the, when my son was being born, like we need some more space. Um, so he had been with us for almost a year in our house. And he knew that 2020 uh, September, like when Teddy was born, he was going to get an apartment and he would make little jokes here and there. Like, can I just live in your basement? Which was not finished at the time. And I'm like, you're making me feel bad. But he was joking. I think it was just like, you know, this is going to be a big step to move to my own apartment. And he moved like five minutes away in a nice apartment. My mom came, helped him get it all set up, still kind of stayed on top of like workouts and stuff. Like I knew when he would work out because it would give me a notification, you know, because we followed each other. But it, it was a way for me to track his mental health because if he was getting up at 5.30 in the morning and going to the gym for two hours, he was good. He was doing okay. And then he kind of fell. His mental health took a another... And I think when he left our house, he lost accountability. And I even say this about myself. Like if I didn't have Brandon and my kids around, would I be the best version of myself? Probably not. I'm more productive. I'm more responsible. I'm more motivated, you know, when I've got people around me to be accountable for. And he lost that. So he never wanted to let us down. He he was his best version of himself. He could not do that when he moved out. And it was never drugs. I always said to him, like, are you sure? Are you sure? He's like, I don't even know where I would get them here. It was food. Right. So then we started to notice he was gaining some weight. That was our gauge of how his mental health was. So he filled that void. His drug was food. He was always like, okay, I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to get back on track. So he did that up and down for a while. And I was just like, you know, he tried multiple medications over the course of his all of this, like every antidepressant medication you can think of. He did not stay in AA meetings which was kind of like a, you have to, if you're coming here, you have to. And he did for a little while and then he didn't. And he didn't love them because he's not religious. So he had a hard time separating that piece from AA and he lost that group. So that always worried me. There was always worries, but I was really reassured because he was like, I can't get, I can't get pills. I don't know where to get them. And seeing him kind of gaining weight and using food was also reassuring to me because I was like, well, at his worst, he's not eating. He looks like a different person when he's using. Then he has an accident and he breaks his wrist. Significant break. He goes to the hospital and that's the first time he had opiates in about two years. Two, more than that. Yeah, more, more than two, two. Like two and a half years of being completely sober. He barely drank. Once in a while, he would drink like if he got nervous and was going to like hang out with a girl or something like that. But I was always worried about his the mental health piece and always so sad for him. I was so scared. And I even told his nurse, I was like, can I talk to your nurse for a second? On the phone, it was COVID. So no one could go to the hospital. And I was like, I just want you to know that he has a history of opiate addiction. And I want to make sure that you guys are aware of that and manage it however you would manage someone who has who has a history of opiate problems. Like I wasn't going to be like, this is what you need to do. But I just was like wanted to make them aware of it. And he did well. He got off of them. They did put regular post-op course and he did fine. 
And that was back to the regular kind of like ups and downs. He was kind of trying to get his like golf swing back. He tried to get one refill at one point. That was oh, so but then he needed another surgery. Oh, that's right. that's right. So it was after his next surgery that he could not get off of them. And we didn't know about it for a long time. He asked his doctor several times because I could look in his chart because he gave me access to it for refills. And he and I was like, this is not good. I remember texting Joe. Like he should not be needing pain medication at this point. Ibuprofen and Tylenol for post-op pain should be covering it. To be honest, they shouldn't be giving him anything. Yeah, and I think it was like ten or twenty milligram oxycotton. So it's yeah. not like it was. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was not like small quantities either. So I couldn't. I was like kind of surprised, and I was like, if, "I'm sorry. Like if you ask for another one, I'm gonna send a message to your doctor." And then he said something, you know, to Joe. I think he talked to you a little bit about like, okay, yes, maybe it is a problem because we both got on him and he was very convincing that it's not a problem. I'm doing fine. He, he never really tried to make me feel like he was okay. He knew my problems as much as I knew his. So he's not out here trying to not impress, but whatever. He didn't want me and Brandon to know before anybody else. Didn't want to let you down. He then thought he was fine. And then we took a trip to a lake around here and he was just off and my mom was with us. He asked me a couple of times for nausea medication and I was like, huge red flag, right? Like, so I said the text, he said, any chance you could send in some Zofran for me? And I was like, why do you need Zofran? And he goes, uh, cause I'm nauseous. Why do you think? And I was like, okay, but why are you nauseous? And he goes, I don't know. And I told my mom about it and she's like, oh, I don't think, you know, cause again, we thought, no, he's back on track. Like things are fine. This isn't a big, this was a bump in the road, but not a bad bump. In my mind, I kind of said to myself and her, I'm going to give him the nausea meds because if he needs them because he's sick or if he needs them because he's withdrawing, he needs them. So I'm going to send them. And there's only so much we can do in the big picture. And he just stayed in the hotel room when we would go out to the lake. My mom left her phone in the hotel room on accident. He'd gotten on her phone and sent himself some money. I was like, that's not right. Obviously, he's using again. And I didn't know where he was getting them from. She asked him. She confronted him. He did the regular thing. Absolutely not. Nope, 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 nope. I'm good. I just was sick. And then within two days, he called her. And I was downstairs exercising. And she came down and she said, I need your keys. Anthony needs to go to detox. I was just so sad. And I texted him. And I said, I knew something was going on. And I'm proud of you for reaching out to mom and going. And you're going to be fine. This is just a roadblock and I love you. And he like went to some detox around here, you know, but didn't do anything after that. We thought it was a small bump um, and never got off of him after that. That's when I called him and it's like, how, how are you even getting shit? And yeah. that's when I found out that he was doing it online on the dark web. And I said to him, like, I'm so scared for you now because now I know you can get it like anytime. And at this point we knew about fentanyl being in everything. And I asked him like, what are you ordering? You know? And he's like, just Percocet, you know, tens and thirties, you know, Joe would always say that he knew exactly what a fake versus a not fake code looked like. And I just assumed Anthony did too, and wouldn't mess with anything that looked fake. And again, stupid of me, someone in that position shouldn't even be left alone in their apartment ever. Even if he's telling us he's good and he's fine and he's going to be okay. Someone who's gambling with a pill that's coming in the mail, knowing what we know now, shouldn't even be in their apartment by themselves. He had like a week where he was like, good. Going to the gym in the mornings at like six o'clock in the morning, he had to take some time off of work. So he was on like a leave from work and he would go to the gym and he would come over, he would cook, we would hang out. And then he started going to the gym first thing in the morning. And I was like, wow, that wasn't really workout. And he's like, I got to get back on track so that I'm good to go at 5am again. Once I start work on Monday, Monday rolls around, I'm back at work and 
I texted him and asked him if he wanted to come over because I was making something for dinner. And he was like, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm going to stay in, which wasn't, wasn't like crazy. He's like, I want to get to the gym early on Tuesday. And I said, okay, maybe tomorrow. And then Tuesday came around and he was telling me that he kind of felt like he was getting sick. And I was like, okay. But then I talked to him on the phone. I could hear it. He actually sounded like he had a bad cold. I said, do you think you need a COVID test or something? And I was like, you know what? You need to schedule a COVID test because it sounds like you could have COVID. And he said, okay. And he sent me and my dad a screenshot of the COVID test he scheduled. And this is because anytime he would go a few days without coming over or go a few hours between texts, we would all like radars would be up. That's just how it was. And then on Wednesday, I'm at work and Anthony hadn't responded to me because I said, how are you feeling? Texted my mom at like nine o'clock. And I was like, has Anthony, when's the last time you talked to Anthony? And she said the day before. And then my mom texted me and just said, I just don't have a great feeling. And I was like, I know I kind of don't either, but I can't leave work right now. So we called Dominic, who we haven't talked about at all, but Dominic moved here too. And my mom texted me, Dominic and Anthony weren't like as close and he wasn't, we tried to shield Dominic from some of this stuff. And she's like, I'm worried about Dominic going in there by himself. I go, yep, me too. So I just was able to like shift patients around and I got in the car. So we met there, he got the key and we, I banged on the door, didn't hear anything. And then just heard his dog running to the door. And so I took the key and I remember like doing it super fast and opened it and the lights were off in the kitchen and the tea room was probably like 10 o'clock. I yelled, you know, for Anthony and I didn't want, I don't know if he was, I don't know how sleeps naked or something. I don't know. Um, and I went into Anthony's bedroom and all I see, he didn't have a shirt on. So all I see was chest rise. And I'm like, okay, turn back to Dominic. And I said, he's fine. He's fine. And I yell at Anthony and I go, Anthony, what the hell are you doing? And he didn't really wake up very much, but I look at Dominic and I said, you can go. Like, he's good. I was like, he probably got something again, but you can go. So I go up to closer to Anthony and um, shook him and his eyes like open up at me and he goes, what? In hindsight, call 911. He took something. He didn't overdose, but he could have. And he probably was, but I didn't I was like, okay, he woke up and he kind of like jolted up for a second. And I go, okay, he didn't overdose. He didn't die. I was mad at him for getting to that point. I didn't want him to get in trouble. And I know the good Samaritan laws and all that stuff, you know, but I just was worried about him getting in trouble because he's gotten in trouble before. It's not like he had a perfectly clean record. I didn't want him to lose his job at PayPal. And I said, get up, put some clothes on and come out here. And I gave him like five minutes. He didn't get up. I went back in there and I go, Anthony. And I yelled at him. I was so ticked off. And he comes out with his clothes on and he sits on his couch with his dog. And I said, what did you take? And he goes, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Like he couldn't hear me, which was strange, but he was so congested. He did. He was like, like he had a cold and he was like, so confused. He was like, what day is it? Are the police here? And I go, no. And I kind of tried to reorient him, but I was so harsh just because I was so frustrated. I said, what did you take? Like, what was it? Where did you get it from? And he's like, I ordered it. Like, I got it, I think on Monday. They're gone. There's nothing else here. I remember saying, like, are you trying to kill yourself? Because you could have died from what I walked into. Um, he said, no. And I said, where are they? Show me where you kept them. And he showed me his headphone case where he kept them. And I could see little like residue. And he goes, they're gone. And I was like, you know, where else would you keep them? And he was like, I'm telling you, like, I would give them to you right now if I had any, they're gone. And I called my mom, put her on speakerphone. And I was like, I got to get back to work. He's out of it. He's awake. He's alive. He's fine. Because in my medical knowledge of overdoses, he's up, he's talking to me, he's confused. 
he didn't overdose. He's not going to like retroactively overdose now. And he was petting his dog. He sat on the couch. He goes, I just need to sleep it off. I just need to sit here. He put the TV on. I said to my mom, like with Anthony right there, I was like, I have to go. So I'm taking his keys and I'm leaving and I'll come back and check on him later because I couldn't get any clear information out of him. He was confused. And I walked, it wasn't a big apartment. So I walked around the apartment, opened every drawer, moved things around, looked to see and everything else about his apartment was perfect. Like it always is. And I grabbed his keys and he goes in it and he said, fine, you can take them. I don't need to go anywhere. Take the keys. And my mom heard that. And she's like, it's okay, Nicole, just, just go. It's fine. Take his keys and go. So I grabbed the keys and I start to walk out and he's sitting on the couch back to me. And I said, like, are you going to be okay? And he was like, yes, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. I go, and I have his keys. I said, well, what if you need something? And he's like, I can order food or whatever. Don't worry, take my keys. So I said, okay. And I shut the door behind me. And I went back to work and I got in the car and I texted my dad and I said, he's fine. And my dad responded with, of course he is. And then I called my mom and I started crying because I, at that point, felt one, guilty for how I was in there. But two, more just, I felt so bad for him because I was like, he must feel so shitty having gotten back to that spot. I was like, I just feel so sad for him. She's like, I know, but we'll figure it out. My mom booked a ticket to come out like the next day. So I'm back to work. And I was sitting around at work and I texted him a handful of times, but he never responded, which again, I was like, he's sleeping it off. And I got myself and got in the car and I was driving over there and I wasn't even nervous, really. I was just like, okay, I'm going to have to sit down, talk to Anthony. And I get to this parking lot of his house and I all of a sudden felt like my stomach dropped a little bit. I was nervous. I knocked on the door and I bang on it and he didn't answer. And the dog, I heard the dog running around. So then I like fumbled for the key and opened the door and he was laying on the couch and he was gone and I knew he was gone. So I like, I remember, I mean, I remember this now a year and a half later so vividly. So I just, I screamed, screamed, and said, no, no, um, and tried to, you know, so tried to do CPR while calling 911. Nobody came, like no one from the apartment complex, like heard me. I was screaming. I was trying to do, you know, CPR, but I knew it was like, I knew that he was, there was, you know, I, I couldn't not be there waiting for 911 to come and not be doing, trying to do chest compressions on him, but I could just tell. And I would just remember as I'm waiting, it, which felt like an eternity for them to get there. I just needed someone else to be in the, be there with me. But thinking that like, how could you have left him? How could you have left him there? And then it went to, I'm going to have to tell my mom and dad that I left him frustrated and told them he was fine. And I'm a doctor and I assessed the situation. Not one second, obviously, did I think that he wouldn't be fine when I came back because again, he didn't, he didn't overdose. He was up. He was okay. So I still don't know what happened. So do you think that that was an overdose? I mean, it must've been if he stopped breathing. For sure. Yeah. So then he, there was an autopsy, um, right? So I was, um, the medics got there. I just got out of the apartment and was talking to the police and they were saying, could it possibly have been drug use? And I was like, yes, please give him Narcan. Like uh, maybe there's like one last ditch effort. Like, yes, opiates, opiates. That's what he used. But they came out not too long after and said, I'm so sorry. From what I couldn't understand was 
he must have gotten something else. And I talked to Joe about this because I was like, please help me understand because I was holding on to hope from the autopsy that he had had a heart attack. Maybe drug mixed with drugs a little bit, but he did have some coronary artery disease that we knew about. There had to have been something else. There had to have been, but cause of death was fentanyl intoxication. So he must have had something else. He must have had something else there and taken it. And I can't believe we never had Narcan. Not that it would have saved him in the 10 minutes between me getting there and the medics getting there. But it's like, you know, with how much we I preach about opiate addiction and all this kind of stuff, I didn't even have it. With someone in my family who I was partially responsible for struggling with opiates, I don't don't even have any, you know? So it's like all these little things that were like, could have done differently, signs I should have seen. And I still don't know. I would love to know. Joe, what was that call like for you? Uh, awful. I called my mom first and I said, I need you to call Joe. I can't call Joe. I pulled up to my uncle's house and he came outside and asked me if I talked to my mom with like a weird look on his face. And I was like, no. He's like, you need to call her. And I said, okay. And I called her and she was sobbing and she told me my mom said that she just heard, like, she just, she's like, Joe and Pete said they just like fell on the driveway and just, she goes, the sound that came out of him was like something I've never heard before, you know? Yeah. I just screamed and cried on the driveway forever. All that sticks out in my mind sometimes is all the times I wasn't patient enough, didn't have enough grace for him. I was as, I feel like as compassionate as, as someone could be, but I still wasn't good enough you know, for him and for what he was struggling with. When you talk to both of you, when you talk to other people about this or or thinking of it from the perspective of this platform of other siblings and parents who are going through this right now with their loved ones struggling and they're frustrated and they've been through the detoxes and the phone calls and the therapists and the money and they're, they, they feel like, what else do they have to give except that they know that they can't give up? What is it that you talk to them? Because you could go all day about what you regret and, and what you would do differently. But maybe the thing you do differently is you tell other people what they can do or what they would have done. How would you have treated him or done things differently that would be helpful to other people? I think that his long-term success was absolutely going to be tied to some kind of group. So AA or otherwise, you know, not just immersing himself back into, you know, life with us and his friends at work and everything. But I always think like, what if he continued with AA or if that was what kind of did it for him? Because he really thrived when he was in a home setting with a bunch of other addicts who were also recovering, pushing that harder. When you have a hunch that something's going on, it's probably way worse than you even think. And not to let them be alone and give them grace because the amount of shame that people feel, it's almost like, and I know it's hard. Oh my gosh. Like I would get so frustrated. I, I get it. But, You're allowed to be frustrated. It's a, yeah. it's a fucking frustrating thing to be. I know. But I think understanding, I think that so much of the time people who don't have addiction like that feel like they could never have understanding from someone who's not an addict. You know, like I think that they feel like ashamed enough, but also that no one could possibly give them that amount of like compassion or understanding, but just reassurance that like, I know that you're doing the best you can. So there's so, and there's a couple things I want to touch on. So one, you both said something almost at the same time that I think should be combined. Joe, you said that, that it's okay to be frustrated. It's really okay to be pissed. And Nicole, you said 
to show compassion and kindness and that they're struggling. And so, you know, one of the things that families often struggle with that I talk about is the combination of those two things, which is I love you so much and I am so frustrated with your disease. I am so frustrated with the struggle that you have because I love you so much. And the ability to combine those two things and separate out the things that that person is struggling with, with the core of their being, but also allowing yourself to be angry about it because those two things, it's very difficult. A lot of the time anger comes out sideways when people try to not acknowledge how frustrating it is. And and when we start to go so deep on like, well, they have a disease, so it's not their fault, but also they're stealing from me and I'm angry. And, you know, we we try to make it all one thing or another. And it's it's this ugly, hairy, gray combination of both of these things that it's okay as the family to be really fucking pissed and also really sad and compassionate and loving and and tr- and wanting to understand and be there and that those two things can coexist. With all that said, what have you been doing? It's obviously only a year out and um, you guys have celebrated your first year, which is always horrendous with all the new things. What has been the thing that has kept you remotely in your own form of recovery because that is the trajectory of your life now as as you know as a, a family that lost somebody to addiction. I think t- I'm still trying to figure that out to be honest. It was a brutal year and the anticipation of each next milestone without Anthony, you know, like first Christmas, the first Thanksgiving, the his birthday, the first year, kind of thinking about everything, a few pieces are always like the forefront of my mind, obviously my children and thinking about how scary it is for them to go to school. Sophia started kindergarten. Eventually she'll be in elementary school. Eventually she'll be in middle school. Kids do stupid things. Every kid does. You have to experiment with stuff. They're going to drink and whatever. And one of the DEA agents involved in Anthony's case had said that he was terrified of when that deadly drug hit pill form because kids think pills are safe. Kids don't often you know, put needles in their arms once at a party. It's a buildup. And now it's... And I've heard so many stories of people around, just even in this community, who've lost their 17-year-old from one pill that they bought on, like you said, Snapchat, because like, what's one pill going to do to me? And how many people don't really know the scope of the problem? And how many parents are so either naive or ignorant and don't educate their kids that one pill, if you get one pill, I don't care if you think you're buying an Adderall to study for your test, because we did that. Kids did that. But now we're in a world where that pill could very well not be Adderall. It could very well be fentanyl and it could very well kill you. Why is this not being talked about more in a school? Parents will say like, you've got my kid for eight hours a day, educate them. But so many schools are resistant because it's not us, right? It's not our town. Um, So I'm fortunate that I can explain to my kids from an early age, hey, guess what? One, I'm a doctor. Two, we lost your uncle to it. And three, I just want you to understand, and this is going to scare you, but if you take one thing from somebody, it could kill you. It's not like it used to be. As we wrap here, what, uh, Joe, I'll start with you. What is one thing that you want to tell someone who's going through this exact thing right now? What is uh, one piece of advice or words of wisdom that you would give that person? 
just keep trying even if you relapse or fail or whatever starting back over is fine you start over a hundred times and hopefully eventually you know if you put in the work it, you won't have to start over again like you had said and like deep down i know that anthony knew how much we all loved him in the moments i think about all the times that i didn't feel like i loved him enough so i think you can get caught up in the day-to-day frustration of it and and lose sight of the fact that your family still loves you you know like you have reasons to keep trying. And I know Anthony felt this and I don't think I told him enough, but you are not defined by, you know, your addiction. And I think you probably get stuck in this place where, and I guarantee Anthony did, where he felt like he was an opiate addict and he was nothing at times more than just someone who was on an on and off roller coaster of doing okay or not okay. I am sure that so many people who are on that same roller coaster feel like they are defined by that and that's what they are and that's what everyone around them thinks that they are. But Anthony was so many amazing things. An addict was just one piece of it. We loved all of the other parts of him. Well, thank you so much for sharing this story, your story, Anthony's story, and helping people get to know him better and and maybe find a roadmap for their own recovery with loss or or in the middle of dealing with it. Again, so, so sorry and really, really grateful that you gave me the opportunity to get to know Anthony too. So thank you. Thank you. And congratulations. You. And what you're doing honestly makes me feel like uh, there's hope. Well, I may sound a little stuffed up because I definitely cried during that one. Yep, me too. That was uh, was really hard. It's one where when we were kind of thinking about this story and thinking about the place the story plays in our podcast and what we're trying to do, it's it's really a hard one because most of the time, you know, the ending is is sort of triumphant, right? It's like it's this big thing for people. But I think there is a role that this particular episode is playing. There are things to be taken from this that are really positive things that the Escanios did for their loved one and can help other people who are who are struggling. I mean, it's so clear how close this family is and it's immediately apparent how much they love each other. You know, I think what they've done in their own recovery and what they're doing with their own platforms, Joe, and the work that he has chosen to do, which is incredibly important and is intimately tied to what you and I do. And Nicole, who is bringing this into what she does in her practice and and the messaging that she can give to families uh, that she's seeing as a family doctor. So sort of in that vein, I guess, for the people who are listening who maybe are either in the boat of having a loved one who's deep in their addiction or maybe someone who has lost, do you have some specific kinds of things that you might point them to? Yes. Going to treatment for 30 days and paying $50,000 or 60 or 100, whatever it is for 30 days of treatment and then not doing long-term aftercare is like buying a Bentley and never getting an oil change. It's going to break down. It is not workable. It is not a solution. That's not how it works. And so many people think, oh, I'll be different. I just need 30 days. I just need a break. Oh, I'm feeling so much better coming out of treatment. Oh, I know so-and-so who did it, whatever it is. That is not a workable solution for addiction. And I see many, many people make that mistake. People also 
shy away from community, whether that's AA or otherwise, because they don't like some of the stuff that goes on. That community was necessary for me to, is necessary for me to stay sober for a long time. I found ways and I found people who had found ways to deal with the discomfort I had around some of the things that felt very religious. There are also non-religious options out there for support groups. 12-step options are just the most prevalent. They're the easiest to find. You, so they're, they're the most abundant. There are so many other group options that people can find and they need to find if they're going to be successful long-term. It doesn't need to be the one I do or the one that Sally does or one your friend does, but it needs to be something. Furthermore, living in an environment for an extended period of time with other people who are sober is invaluable. That time that you get going through the journey, going through the feelings, that experience that people get often from a sober living environment, which Anthony did and sounds like he really excelled in is really, really helpful. Bringing people back home into the environment where they used is more often than not a bad idea. Sometimes it's the only option. And in that case, we typically pair it with intensive outpatient so that they can process the things that are going on while they're home and while they're back in their their environment and triggers. But it's not ideal. As I may have said, I always recommend that people have some sort of addiction professional helping guide them in their journey dealing with their loved one. Even for myself, I would have one if I was dealing with one of my children. Even though I am in recovery and am also an addiction professional, I would still have someone helping because there is such an emotional attachment to what's going on. Sometimes we miss stuff that's really important and we get dragged into emotional traps and we need someone who can help us untangle them from the outside who has experience with the disease. It is not intuitive to handle addiction as a family member. Family members should explore groups like Al-Anon and ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. You will find a ton of support there or find a therapist who can support you. Lastly, I think that people should keep Narcan. There are ways to get Narcan, should keep Narcan on their person or in their home. And they should also buy fentanyl testing strips if they have a loved one who is using any type of drugs at all. Uh, You can go to dosetest.com and buy fentanyl testing strips where someone will just have the strip and they will test it on the pill or the powder or whatever it is that, that they're using and it will let them know if that sample has fentanyl in it. And it's a small start that we can make towards harm reduction, which saves lives. Uh, Lastly, again, people who have been struggling with addiction, even if they quote unquote aren't an alcoholic, should abstain from alcohol for a, a significant period of time while they are working on staying clean. It is a mistake for people to think that using another substance does not have an effect on them. Cross addiction is a very big deal and often a thing that takes people into relapse. Additionally, when you are an opiate addict, for example, and you're drinking, you are removing your eligibility from, say, the AA group that you may have a bunch of friends in. And if you truly don't have a problem with alcohol, then abstaining in order to receive the benefits from being in that group 
should be greater. That should be a greater priority. But I really, 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 really recommend people learn about cross addiction because addiction does not leave when the substances leave. The addiction is in the brain. It's not in the substance. And so when people who have addiction in their brain, when they put substances into their body, they often trigger a craving. When you're dealing with such deadly addictions, I recommend having as few triggers as possible for the first at least three to four years. For anybody out there who's who's struggling with this, I hope uh, that you don't give up and that maybe some of the things that were in the episode or things that Ashley talked about can be of help for you. Uh, as always, if you're feeling stumped, you can always reach out to us at podcast at lionrock.life. That's podcast at lionrock.life. Ashley, anything that you want to leave folks with? If you're worried about a loved one, you think they might be using again, or you think they might have a problem, I suggest calling them or talking to them and asking them how you can support them. Tell them, hey, I'm worried about you. I love you so much. How can I be supportive of you? Don't accuse them of anything. You don't need to ask specific questions. Just tell them that you love them, that you're worried and offer that support. So often that opens up the conversation for the person to share more of what's going on for them, but on their terms. And I I hope that helps. And if you are interested in more specific direction, again, feel free to email us at podcast at lionrock.life. See you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.